Good evening. We're glad you're here to study with us from the book of Psalms. We are in chapter 2. Psalms chapter 2. My thanks to Herb and Darrell for taking my place while I was away for an extended period. We're back. Glad to be back. Paula's still out of town for a few days to visit her sisters. We are in Psalms chapter 2 this evening. The passage will be read. 12 verses we will set ourselves to the task of learning what it means and that will put us in good position to draw some practical lessons for each of us to use today. We'll begin in our study tonight before we read the text we'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father accept our praise and gratitude for all the rich goodness of thy mercy that we enjoy in Jesus Christ. May we be his disciples every day, and may we learn more tonight about thy power and authority over the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. From the book of Psalms, we're in chapter 2, 12 verses. I want to read these verses, and then we'll begin our study. Psalms chapter 2, reading from the English Standard Version. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. I want to mention something I may have, may have said earlier, but this would be a good time to bring it up again. Have you ever noticed that in the English translations of the Bible, it is interesting, the book of Psalms is approximately near or at the very center of the printed text. I mean, if you pick up a Bible and close your Bible and then open the Bible to the middle, it is very possible it will open to the book of Psalms. Now that depends on what else you have packed in your Bible, concordances or study notes or maps, but generally when you open up a Bible at the middle, you'll open to Psalms or you will be near the book of Psalms. Now, this may seem to be trivial, but there's a very happy coincidence in that observation. There are truths in the book of Psalms which ought to be 
at the very center of what we believe and how we respond to God. Truths about God, truths about man, about sin and temptation, truths having to do with character and history recorded in the book of Psalms. This Old Testament book is packed with praise and petition and penitence and prophecy, all of it of great value for us today. Now, in this course of study, we have selected certain psalms to help us keep centered in our faith in God. And when we categorize the psalms, I mentioned this in the very first class, we use a variety of labels for study purposes. We talk about the penitential psalms where the writer expresses repentance or the historical psalms or the psalms of lament and so forth. Then we talk about the messianic psalms. And here's what that means. Psalms where the Holy Spirit directed attention to Christ, the Messiah, long before his incarnation. We call those messianic psalms. They have to do with prophecy given in the book of Psalms. Now, how do we determine that a particular psalm is messianic? Well, sometimes the content of a passage has Christ written all over it. I mean, it describes someone who is perfect and divine and holy and with power to save. Uh, some examples, the 23rd Psalm is messianic, having to do with Christ. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalms 97, the most high above all the earth. Psalm 45, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So sometimes the content of a passage in the book of Psalms immediately directs our attention to one of such magnitude it could find fulfillment only in Christ. The content sounds like the Messiah. But there's another way we determine that a passage in Psalms is messianic. And this way is absolutely objective. When a New Testament writer identifies a passage in Psalms as messianic, then that leaves no doubt. I'm going to take you over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 in just a moment. In the case of Psalms chapter 2, it certainly sounds like the Messiah. For instance, in verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. But we have the more objective means of knowing this is about Christ. Acts 4 23 to 31. Here's the scene. Peter and John are preaching the gospel. As a result of opposition to their preaching, they were detained by Jewish authorities, threatened and then released. Peter and John go back to the good company of Christians, and here's what Luke says about it in Acts 4, 23 to 31. When they were released, that's Peter and John, 
they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the nations plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, here's what they're doing. In their prayer, after this wave of persecution hit them, they refer to Psalms chapter 2. And in referring to it, they say, Who through the mouth of our father David your servant said, and then you have the quotation from Psalm chapter 2. Now, if you have a good reference Bible, a Bible where you have references along the center column or at the bottom, Acts 4, 23 to 31 is probably going to be listed there. And if you're not holding a reference Bible, in most Bibles, the quotation over in Acts 4 in verses 25 and 26 is set aside by indentation or it's marked with italic typeface. So this is significant in understanding Psalm 2. Christians in Jerusalem in the first century not only understood Psalms 2 to be messianic, they knew it well enough to quote it in their prayer. And Luke records it, leaving us with no doubt Psalm chapter 2 points to the Messiah. And there's still another reference, and that's in Hebrews 1 and verse 5. So, that's settled. Let's turn back now to Psalms chapter 2 and spend a few minutes going through the chapter, and I promise it's going to put us in good position for further development of our faith and good applications for our use in life. There are four scenes in Psalm chapter 2. Rebellion on earth, that's described. God's response to that rebellion on earth is then described. <coughs> then you have a description of the anointed one, the Messiah, on his throne, and then you have an invitation to everybody in verses 10 through 12 to pay careful attention to God's response to rebellion on the earth. So let's go through that. The first scene, rebellion on the earth. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, this scene depicts men on earth plotting to rebel against God, planning to rebel against God. Not just an absence of God in their lives, but direct plotting and rebellion against God. 
It is one thing to live your life and join with others on earth completely ignoring God. But this goes beyond that. Notice the accumulated words and phrases here. Rage, plot, set themselves against, and taking counsel. So the scene is described of human rebellion on earth, not just ignoring God's will, but against him in a very direct way. The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the Old Testament documents this in every dispensation. Men conspiring with one another and their purpose fixed and direct to resist God. The Old Testament describes it over and over again. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? Or do you remember the Egyptian Pharaoh? Do you remember the empires of Assyria and Babylon? These are men who knew of God's existence and in some cases knew of God's plan. And they heard from God's prophets in some of these cases. Yet, they pursued a deliberate agenda to resist God, to take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. That's the scene that's painted in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, the rebellious human leaders on earth are quoted. This is described sometimes as the Holy Spirit listening in to the conspiracies of men. The Holy Spirit listening in to the conspiracies of men and then reporting that. <clears throat> so here's the quote. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In many English translations, you may notice the pronouns referring to deity are in the uppercase. Their, their bonds, their cords. And see, that shows us what context bears out. That these men on earth are having meetings. They're talking about this. They're making their plans. They're carrying out their vain plots directly against deity, against God, and against those appointed and anointed and sanctioned by God before Christ, the kings God set up, and ultimately against the ultimate king, Christ. Now, move to the New Testament in your timeline. In the time of Christ, you observe that very thing. In the early efforts of Herod to find and kill Jesus. After that, the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests, they would have meetings. They would hire Judas. They would talk about what they were going to do directly against 
God. These are men who are so corrupted and arrogant in their thoughts and plans, they took counsel together against God, against the Messiah. They sought to defeat the spread of the gospel. Then after Jesus ascended back into heaven after his resurrection, these men are punishing the apostles. They're killing them and they sought their own power. So the first scene in Psalms chapter 2 is one of humans plotting against deity. It is rebellion on earth. The hostility of men against God and against his anointed, against God's determination, God's purpose, God's plan. It's like, I think it's an accurate description, the Holy Spirit listening in on the plots and agendas and meetings of men who are talking directly about rebelling against God. That's the first scene in Psalm chapter 2. Questions or comments? The second scene, God's thoughts about all this. I mean, stop and think. Is God afraid? Is God concerned? Is God terrified? Here's God's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, do you get any sense there that God is concerned about these meetings that men are having? You get any idea that God is afraid of these powerful men and their empires conspiring against him? He's not concerned about that. And it's a tremendous encouragement to God's people to know while men on earth conspire and plot vain things against our God, God is not only not moved from his purpose, he sits in heaven and laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, if I had any idea that people were gathering together and having meetings and plotting against me, I think I'd lose some sleep. I think I'd be worried. If you had any idea that someone was meeting together with others, people of power, and they were coming up with a plan to resist you and do you harm, you'd probably be worried. You'd consider it to be a threat. God's attitude is of no concern about executing his plan. I want you to look at what he says. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. With reference to the kings that God set up over Israel, and with reference to the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> who is on the throne in heaven now, God knew all along men wouldn't stop him from that. God knew all along, all these enemies who are trying to hinder God and work against him and eventually eliminate his anointed, the Messiah, God is not concerned. 
All these schemes were defeated. They never had a chance against God. In fact, God not only thought nothing of their plan, He spoke against them in His wrath. So God is not only not worried, but He's going to deal with His enemies. And He's going to deal with them decisively. Verse 5, Then He shall speak to them in His wrath, and distress them in his deep pleasure. The only distress is going to be on the part of the conspirators on earth. No distress in heaven. God is laughing. The men on earth who are plotting against him, they're going to be worried. They're going to be defeated. And they're going to be in deep displeasure. They're going to be experiencing the derision and fury of the Almighty. See, obedience pleases God. Disobedience and rebellion arouses His displeasure. God in the dispensations before Christ came often spoke His wrath to rebellious men and then he acted on his words according to his plan and let us carefully observe in verse 6 that though men rebelled against God and eventually against the Messiah God's plan to enthrone Christ came to pass yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion now that leads us to the throne scene, it is sometimes called, in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I think there is no doubt David is prophesying about Christ on his throne. No other king would fit this description. David speaks here and he speaks prophetically on behalf of the one who would occupy the throne forever. We know that God said to Christ, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Romans 1, Hebrews 1, Acts 4 that we read. We know that God gave to Christ the rule, the throne, the nations for an inheritance, the ends of the earth for his possession. We see Christ here, Ruling using the rod of iron to break the rebellious. The very thing that the book of Revelation says that Jesus did when he crushed the Roman Empire. Same terminology, the rod of iron. So the throne of David was forever occupied by Christ. So the resurrection of Christ from the dead is part of this as written by Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, we see Christ on his heavenly throne after being raised. Everything here fits with all the other prophecies that point to the establishment of the kingdom, the church, 
that we are now citizens of if we've obeyed the gospel. So this is more than just a distinction conferred upon Christ, though it's that. It goes beyond simple recognition or approval. All are subject to Christ. He reigns. He rules. He has obtained a more excellent name. And men in all of their conspiracies against God couldn't stop it. They couldn't hinder God's plan at all. So, rebellion on the earth. The Holy Spirit listens in on the meetings of men as they plot vain things against God. God is not concerned. The distress is not on God's end. God is laughing. The men are going to be distressed when God speaks his wrath. And God says, I will put my son on that throne. And he will rule with a rod of iron. That's verses 7 through 9. So, what Bible writers often do after they describe something like this or go through a narrative of this nature, what Bible writers often do is they conclude by saying, here's what folks ought to do. Here's how people ought to respond. 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Just a perfect sermon. A perfect sermon. Men on earth are plotting vain things against God. God's response is not to worry, but to laugh and to speak his wrath. He's going to establish Christ on his throne, verses 7 through 9. And then there's the big therefore. The invitation to all. Be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice, rejoice with trembling. So, maybe this is where we got the expression. You ever heard this? Wise men obey him. Wise men obey him. Wise kings rule aware of God's authority and that Christ is on his throne and that he's coming again. Now let me say that again. Wise men obey him. Wise kings and leaders rule aware of God's sovereignty and that Christ is on his throne and that he will come again. If we get nothing else from the second psalm, we need to get that and act on it if we're wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Now there is here a curious use of the word kiss. That's a universal sign of affection, respect, relationship. One of the first 
cases of corrupting the kiss was Judas. One of the first cases of taking that universal sign of affection and corrupting it. It's regrettable that the act of kissing has been over-romanticized and sexualized. You remember in Acts chapter 20 when Paul was on one of his journeys and he came through to meet the elders of the Ephesian church. You remember all the emotion that Luke describes? And they fell upon Paul and they were kissing him. It's a universal sign of affection. Well, here in the second psalm, this imagery is designed to convey to us the strongest of affections that we ought to have for the Son, the Son of God, the Messiah, the anointed of God. And then it says, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So that's the second Psalm. I want to read it, then we'll get to my takeaways. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. <clears throat> then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Questions or comments before I go through my takeaways? Many of the takeaways are obvious already, but I'm going to give you these anyway. One of the simplest lessons to learn from the second psalm is that God cannot be defeated. When we put ourselves at cross purposes with God, when we go against His Word, His will, there can never be a good outcome. Never be a good outcome. If, for instance, you know what God wants you to do, you are clear in your head about His instructions, you have been taught, but you pursue your own way, knowing it's against His will, you're putting yourself in a battle you will never win. And if you ignore His instructions in the first place, you're putting your life in a position 
where you will never win. Here's what we call this. We call this the sovereignty of God. Meaning there's nobody higher. Certainly none of us are higher. The men on the earth plot vain things against the Almighty. The sovereignty of God. You never win. God cannot be defeated. Secondly, this psalm puts world leaders and world empires on notice. They should not plan anything contrary to God's will. In time, or at the end of time, God will answer those plans with his wrath. You can never formulate a plan against his will and expect that God is going to be terrified or that God will do nothing. He's going to respond according to his wrath. And I don't mean this to sound political. I'm not talking about methods and policies that we may think are not wise in debate about. I'm talking about men here and regimes going directly against God's will. They cannot win. They cannot defeat God. Though temporarily to people on earth it may seem so. So the extermination of innocent people Laws that run against what God has said. Abortion is an example. This says the Lord holds them in derision. So two very simple things that come out of the second psalm is that God cannot be defeated. Therefore, never make a plan against his will. You're putting your life eternally in jeopardy. I think the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2 will be in the final judgment. The divine rod of iron dashing God's enemies in pieces as described in Revelation and as described in other passages that speak of God's wrath. There will be in the end a decisive and complete and final victory over all of the plans and schemes and sins of men on earth. And so, verse 11 says, serve the Lord with fear. I ought to get up every day and re-decide and recommit. I'm going to serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. That's interesting. I'd like to talk a whole lot about that. But I don't have that much time. But I want to plant the thought. Rejoice in what God provides that you can partake of in Christ by the activity of faith. Rejoice in that, but tremble at the consequences if you don't partake of that. And you don't live as a disciple of the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. Then, it occurred to me, actually late in my study that the psalm identifies pagan traits. When we use the word pagan, we're talking about godless, pagan traits. And the psalm describes and exposes pagan traits. And you could make a list of them like this, arrogance, 
greed for power, insensitive to human need, irreverence, those are the traits of pagans. Those are the traits of the world that we need to reject individually every day. That's almost at the end of our time. Questions or comments? I want to recommend there's a lot of repetition in the book of Psalms. It's such a large book and that's one reason in this study we selected certain Psalms to study. I want to recommend that when you get home tonight or maybe maybe you'll have time to look over it, Psalms 110 is almost identical to the second Psalm. And you may see that in your reference Bible. Psalms 110 is almost identical. Seven verses and it almost goes through exactly the same pattern. So here's what I need to take from the building with me at the end of this study. Serve the Lord with fear. Thank you for your good attention to our study.